We return this morning to Matthew 26, where we uh, will be moving forward, but not until we first move a little bit backward. We're going to start our reading at verse 17, just a few verses into our text from last week, uh, but with a different focus in mind. Last week, our minds and the eyes of our hearts were fixed narrowly on Judas, and perhaps so much so that we might have missed out on another major emphasis of this passage, and uh, that is on the Passover, and it's linked to our Savior's death for us on the cross. Paul makes that link explicit, you might remember, in his letter to the Corinthians, in which he calls Christ our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed for us. Let's go to the text after first seeking the Lord's uh, help and blessing on his word. Father, we want to hear what you have intended to say to us, and so we submit ourselves gladly to the work of your Holy Spirit now and open our hearts, apply your truth, we pray in the inmost parts, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did, as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. Now, if you'd skip with me down to verse 26, please. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again uh, of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Nearly ten years ago, the Reverend Chris Granberry, organizing pastor of Hope Fellowship Church at the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington State, came to address us at our Wednesday evening prayer meeting I was to pick him up at the airport earlier that day, but I wondered what I might do with him for the afternoon between his landing and our uh, prayer meeting. He had provided us uh, with such a wonderful cross-cultural experience, a unique and genuine uh, Native American encounter during our church's mission trip out there. Hard to believe that was 10 years ago, isn't it? So I wondered how I might return the favor. You know, what, what kind of uniquely mid-South Americana experience could I provide for him? So I thought and thought on the matter, and then it occurred to me I would take him to the Toyota plant. And uh, so that's what I did. Straight from the airport at Evansville, we headed north to Princeton to witness the implementation of such time-honored Southern American virtues as Hantai and uh, Kaizen and 
Genji Gimbutsu. Uh, Genbutsu, excuse me. Uh, I think I might have just said something wrong in Japanese. But it was a thoroughly interesting tour and one that I recommend highly to you. What fascinated me the most about the tour was how impeccably timed everything in that truly huge plant really is. As a Sienna, as a Toyota Sienna is built, it moves down the long production line and first in stamping and then to welding and then painting and then interior parts, dashboard and seats and steering wheel and so on. And then the exterior parts, the mirrors, the windshield, and then the wedding of chassis and engine with the body, the drivetrain, the wheels, and so on. And all the while that you're making your way through the plant, overhead and along the aisles on each side is this constantly flowing, conveying of, of parts making their way from one end of the plant to the exact place where they're attached to the vehicle for which they're intended. And at every workstation, workers are turning around and grabbing the next part and attaching it to the van that's making its way past them. And, and the truly amazing thing is, and it is amazing, is that exactly the right time, exactly the right part shows up in exactly the right place. You know, if a customer ordered alloy wheels, there they are for that particular van. If it's a white van, boom, there's a white bumper appears in the hopper. You know, it's a, a bucket seats or bench seats and on and on. They're being delivered at the very moment that it's required by that particular van right in front of the seat installers just to put it in and move right on it. The, the immensity of the work that goes into running a plant like that, all that timing, seeing all these different parts, and that's a thought, too, from all over the United States and all over the world, all these parts, whatever they may be, get unloaded from the trucks, they get put on the line, they get moved across, across the plant, they're wedded in exactly the right time, and in turn with a particular vehicle that has a plethora of custom options, tweaks converging in perfect harmony to each and every customer's personal order. I mean, it really is mind-boggling. The whole thing's just ingenious. Now, if that's impressive, what must we say about the divine genius that lies behind the timing of the events that procured your salvation? You know, at Christmas time, we're reminded that uh, it was in the fullness of time. We read from Paul in his letter, that God sent his son into the world to save us, that we might be adopted in, into his family. It was no mistake that Jesus appeared exactly when he did. No haphazard event. God timed everything perfectly from the Pax Romana, you know, the conditions under Roman rule that opened the way for the gospel to spread. The census and the timing of it that sent Mary and Joseph at just that time to Bethlehem. The star that brought the Magi from the east and to the reign of Herod that sent Jesus and his family in flight to Egypt. And all of it was designed and executed according to the mind, the eternal plan of God. And precise. 
And those are just a few of the circumstances that we can actually see, that we know about, and measure from our puny, puny little perspective. Just like what I saw in that auto plant, what we've seen of God's plan is really just the results. I mean, all we get to see is the outskirts, right, of what we're allowed to see, what God allows us to know about. But if that was true of Jesus' birth, how much more of his death? It's not by mere coincidence, dear flock, that Jesus found himself in Jerusalem that very night at that very time to be betrayed. Betrayed to his death. This is not happenstance. This is divine design. Centuries before this, God instituted the Passover celebration on the night before the Israelites were freed from their bondage in Egypt. You remember the history, of course. After one punishing plague after another after another, finally it comes to this. The angel of the Lord will bring death to every household in Egypt, to the firstborn of every and absolutely every family that night. Imagine the wailing and the crying and the weeping that must have risen from that land, must have filled the air of the whole place with its shrill cacophony of shrieking and screaming. And every house death dealt its brutal blow. Except, except for the homes that had blood smeared around the door, on the doorposts and on, on the lintel overhead. Those homes, the angel of death, what? Passed over, hence the name, Passover. Whose blood? Any blood? The blood of the sacrificial lamb. You remember, according to the instructions, a lamb was to be sacrificed, a, a lamb without blemish, sacrificed with care not to break any of its bones, its blood smeared on the doorposts, its flesh eaten by the inhabitants of that covenant home. That was hundreds of years before Jesus' incarnation. But even that night in the upper room, its design, though not understood in its fullness, even by the disciples, probably not even until fully, fully until much later, upon reflecting on the events of that night, I say even then God had laid it all out by His precise plan and divine. All of it was instituted in preparation, even hundreds of years earlier, for this very event, for this one night on which Jesus would hold the cup and say, this is my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amazing. Even more immediately, Jesus had timed all of this perfectly. Even, I think, the arrangements for this particular celebration in this particular place. Jesus sent his disciples, Luke tells us in his gospel, it was specifically Peter and John. 
sent them with instructions, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Uh, Luke, I say, fills in some more of the details for us. Peter and John, Luke tells us, asked Jesus where. And Jesus told them that a man carrying a jar of water would meet them and they should follow him to the place where they would celebrate the Passover together. Now, how did Jesus know that? As we said last week, it may have been with just his prophetic eye. But it seems to me more likely that Jesus had prearranged the event. Now, the fact that Jesus knew Judas was looking for the perfect place to betray Jesus apart from the crowds causes me to think that Jesus used great care to avoid disclosing the location to all of his disciples, earnestly desiring that he have this one time with his disciples, a Passover supper with his beloved before going to his cross work. But whether I'm right about that detail or not, and you're free to disagree, of course, this much is certain. Divine fingerprints are all over this history, orchestrated to link Jesus' death with the Passover forever as a fulfillment of its enacted prophecy. With the Lamb slain for the salvation of all those who find themselves protected under the covering of that blood. Jesus says the Apostle Paul is our Passover lamb. The divine genius is that has Jesus, the Lamb of God, hanging on the cross at that very time that the flesh of the Passover lamb is between the teeth or in the stomachs of those celebrants in Jerusalem is no mistake. It's just one more example of impeccable divine direction of every little detail, the precise timing of it all, every event in his vast universe. The movement of every atom, the thought of every man, and particularly with regard to accomplishing redemption from Jesus' birth his resurrection to his ascension that we celebrate today. The modern singing group Selah sings a song that wonderfully picks up on this whole matter of divine timing and the more amazing when you think that God planned all of this, our redemption, the sacrifice of his son for you before the foundation of the world. A child was born on Christmas Day, born to save the world. But long before the world began, he knew his death was sure, the pain and strife secured. Mystery, how he came to be a man, but greater still, how his death was in his plan. God predestined that his son would die, and he still Created man. Oh, what love is this, that death was in his hands. His death 
was in his hands. Mystery. Mystery. Now the timing of all of this is wonderful, as thrilling and even mysterious as it must be to us is not all that we need to receive from this history. There are a few other things too. So looking now not with our own eyes so much as with the eyes as through the wide eyes of the enthralled disciples there watching as Jesus takes a loaf of bread that night, gives thanks for it, breaks it into pieces and giving it to his disciples as this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take note first of the centrality of Jesus' death. The centrality of Jesus' death. On this solemn occasion, on this last evening with them, Jesus was instructing them. He was giving them instructions for a memorial service, wasn't he? A service that was not to be observed only once, but over and over and over and over again. Not as a final terminal tribute, but a regular, ongoing remembrance of Him. They were, we are, to copy His acts and His words. And we do that, don't we? Every single Lord's Day, we do that in this house in word and in deed, taking, breaking, blessing, identifying, sharing bread and wine. What do they signify? His body broken, his blood shed. Not his body hale and hearty as it was that night, but his body as it would be within 24 hours of this meal, even less. Not his blood as it coursed through his veins at that table, but as it soon would be, poured out for them in death on the cross. Brothers and sisters, this supper, this Lord's Supper, is it's not a sign and seal of his birth. It's not a dramatization of his life or even his words or his deeds. It is the commemoration of his death. And it is the only regular commemorative act that was directly authorized by Jesus. So let me ask you. For what do you think Jesus wishes that you should remember him? Well, apparently, above everything else, it's for his death. Christianity is the cross. If the cross is not central to your religion, then yours is not a religion of Jesus. Yours is not the Christian religion. A Christianity that is only Christmas is not a true Christianity at all. Now, we celebrate Christmas. I love Christmas. You know I love to celebrate it with you, of course. We celebrate it for a very good reason. But can you remember a single divine commandment to celebrate Christmas? Is it anywhere in your Bible? To commemorate his birth. Well, search your Bibles as you please. It's not there. But we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week of the year. 
in this house because we're under orders to do this. Often, says Jesus, in remembrance of him. The 19th century Scottish churchman A.B. Bruce in his timeless work, The Training of the Twelve, imagines Jesus saying, as it were, to his disciples and to us this, Fix your eyes on Calvary and watch what happens there. That is the great event of my earthly history. Other men have monuments erected to them because they have lived lives deemed memorable. I wish you to erect a monument to me because I have died. Not forgetful of my life indeed, yet specially mindful of my death, commemorating it for its own sake, not merely for the sake of the life whereof it is the termination. The memory of other men is cherished by the celebration of their birthday anniversaries. But in my case, better is the day of my death than the day of my birth for the purpose of a commemorative celebration. My birth into this world was marvelous and momentous, but still more marvelous and momentous is my exit out of it by my crucifixion. Of my birth, no festive commemoration is needed, but of my death, keep alive the memory by the Holy Supper till I come again. Remembering it well, you remember all my earthly history, for of all it is the secret, the consummation, the crown. Now that point wasn't lost on the apostles, was it? Now open your Bible to any of the apostles' letters and you will be struck by how often, over and over and over again, the apostles preached the cross. It was their message. Back to the cross they went, to the cross, to the cross. Everything measured by the cross. Everything under the shadow of the cross. The blood, the sacrifice of Christ, the Passover lamb, the touchstone of everything. It was at the center of their preaching because it was at the center of Christ's message and Christ's work as overwhelmingly demonstrated by this supper. And it is why the cross is so often the subject of our discussion and so often at the center of the worship in this house. It's why we sing with gusto, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's, that's the first point, the centrality of his death as demonstrated in this supper. Second, we learn the purpose of Jesus' death. Look at the words he uses. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins, he says. For the forgiveness of your sins. And of my sins. That was the message of the entire sacrificial system, of which 
the Passover was sort of the crowning event, right? For the forgiveness of sin, for reconciliation with God. What was required? Blood. Blood must be shed. For centuries, the blood of literally millions of animals was shed as a picture, a sign and seal of the atonement, of being made right with God, of being brought back to God, of being reconciled to God, as Deacon Thomas so wonderfully prayed for us and led us in prayer this morning and reminded us, as Kevin just did, that calf after calf, bowl after bowl, lamb after lamb, sacrifice, could not do it! Couldn't wash away our sin. Only the blood of the Lamb, of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Only that blood would do and did to wash away your sin and leave you without spot. This is what Jesus understood clearly that night in the upper room, isn't it? And what he's at pains to convey here to his disciples. I'm doing this for the forgiveness of your sin. Of your sins. My body given for you. My blood shed for you. That and nothing less is what is required to procure your salvation. And that is what I'm doing now. Jesus is saying and what I am about to do. Alas, that we're just, we're all too familiar with this, aren't we? We're, we're too familiar to be shocked anymore, to be rocked back on our heels by this staggering plea. And it is astounding how it is that we can even talk about this and not thrill over it. Certainly more than we do. This is the divinely appointed sacrifice by which your forgiveness was won. And this supper, the ratifying sign and seal of that salvation, of that covenant through which the forgiveness of God comes to you, finds you, washes you, takes hold of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is shed for you. That leads me to the third point, which is that you must appropriate that death for yourself personally. Remember on another occasion when Jesus said to the chagrin of many would-be disciples, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What he meant to say that day, and what he showed the night of this supper, is that it is not enough for him to give his flesh and blood shed for you. In order for that sacrifice to be made effectual, it must be received. You must act 
too. You must receive that body. You must receive that blood. You must, as Paul puts it, participate in his body and his blood. You cannot remain content to be a mere spectator, a sort of onlooker. Even in the upper room, it was not just one acting on stage while a dozen watched from the audience. No, they were involved as well. Remember? It's true. While it is true, he did the blessing, he did the breaking, he did the pouring and the giving. They were participants too. Don't fail to catch this message and the significance of the supper. When we gather at this table and eat and drink, we're not coming as spectators of the drama of the cross. You are coming to participate. You are eating and drinking, receiving the Savior, the crucified Savior. At the supper, you are feeding on Christ. For him to give his body and blood in death is one thing. For us to make the blessing of his death our own is quite another. The late Dr. John Stott remembered the day that he came to understand that distinction and what a revelation it was to him as a young man to learn that in this matter of salvation, he must act too. I used to imagine, wrote Stott, I used to imagine that because Christ had died, the world had automatically been put right. When someone explained to me that Christ had died for me, I responded rather haughtily, everybody knows that. As if the fact itself, or my knowledge of the fact, had brought me salvation. But God does not impose his gifts on us willy-nilly. We have to receive them by faith. Now, do you hear that? Christ has died. He's given his body and his blood for you. But you cannot stand there with your hands in your pockets, shrug your shoulders, you know, and do nothing and expect to be saved by that blood. You, you must believe. You must repent. You must turn from your sins to Christ and receive Him. Receive that free gift of eternal life. That salvation from your sin and from the wrath to come that you know you are due. The judgment that must fall upon you because of your sin unless you are in Christ. You must eat his flesh. You must drink his blood. Which is just another way of saying that you must receive him wholly and completely by faith. He must become your meat. He must be your drink. He must be your life. He must be your all. Your all in all. 
his death perfectly, impeccably, divinely timed to fall right on the feast of the Passover is the perfect demonstration that he has given himself the lamb as a sacrifice for you and that you must eat and drink. Or to put it another way, you must take that blood and place it on the doorposts and lintel of your heart and of your covenant home. If you will do that now, if you will receive him now, then I tell you on that great day to which Jesus refers there in verse 29, at the coming of the Father's kingdom, Jesus himself will drink that wine with you. In his Father's kingdom, drink it new with you at that great wedding feast of the Lamb and the never-ending festivities awaiting all the children of God in the life hereafter. Even so, Lord, quickly come. Amen.